my guest this evening is Joe Dallas. Joe Dallas is an author, speaker, and counselor who speaks nationwide. He founded Genesis Counseling and Cloudfire Ministries as the author of nine books on human sexuality from a Christian perspective, including the best-selling Desires in Conflict and the Gay Gospel Question Mark. His articles have been fe featured in publications throughout this country. His website is joedallas.com. You're going to want to make a note of that, joedallas.com. Joe and his wife, Renee, reside in Orange County, Orange County, California, with their two sons. And I first heard Joe speak probably many years ago at a Love One Out conference by Focus on the Family. And what I um, saw then and what I've seen through the years is that Joe is um, just a valued resource on uh, just the, how we approach these issues, these very sensitive issues biblically. So I'm going to start with, well, welcome, Joe. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me, Kathy. This is a pleasure. Been looking forward to it. So well, let's start with your background and how you came to be someone who is a pastoral counselor on issues of human sexuality. Well, it wasn't a very pretty process, Kathy. Actually, this is a personal issue to me as well as a professional one, because I was uh, a very committed gay activist from 1978 to 1984. And I went into that way of life as a backslidden Christian. I want to point that out because uh, oh, during my experience with the gay community and in the years since then, I've found that there are quite a few uh, people who were raised in church and or born again as adults who privately wrestled with homosexuality but never felt that they could confess it to anyone. So they finally gave up on the struggle and said, I'm going to declare myself gay, which is exactly what I did in 1978 after having been a Christian for about six, seven years. But uh, I did miss the fellowship of the church. So I tried to find a way around the conflict by joining a gay affirming church in uh, late 1978. And I wound up actually on staff with that church. Uh, for a few years, the uh, was the Metropolitan Community Church, just one of the few gay affirming churches at that time. And uh, I pretty much carried the banner for years and then was brought to repentance in 1984. The questions I couldn't get away from were basically two. Was I really in the will of God? And did I care if I wasn't? And those really pierced me. As you know, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is nothing comfortable, but it's uh, so often what I call the labor pain before rebirth. And that's what turned me around. I relocated out to Orange County, California, got some good Christian counseling, got grounded in a Bible-believing church, and eventually met a young woman who I fell very deeply in love with. She's been my wife for 36 years now, this coming August, and the mother of my two grown sons. It was also during the first year of our marriage that my own ministry began as a, a biblical counselor. I wanted to work with people who were in the same position I had been, because I found that there are quite a few within the Christian population. Uh, people have often looked at my work as a kind of an outreach to the gay community. That's not really what it's been. It's been a discipleship ministry for Christians who have sexual feelings that are at odds with their worldview as Christians. And they're wanting to know what to do with those feelings and how to live their lives in a God-honoring way. But along the way, of course, I found that a lot of churches are confused as to how they should address this. And the culture, as you know very well, Kathy, over the last few decades especially, has shifted to a pretty solidly gay-affirming position. Now, I know it's not fair to say the whole culture shifted that way, but largely American culture 
um, has taken a gay affirmative position. And certainly the main cultural influencers, psychiatry, education, media, entertainment, they have all shifted to solidly pro-gay positions. Now, both the culture and its influencers are looking at you and me, at members of the body of Christ. And they're saying, it's your turn, guys. And we're finding ourselves in what I believe is relatively new territory for the church in America, because the church and the culture in America have generally had a pretty genial relationship. America has been largely influenced by Judeo-Christian cultures. Now we find ourselves having to defend what we've always believed, and we never thought we would have to defend it. So now we're feeling the tension of having to defend ourselves, not only for the position we hold, but against the charges being leveled against us, that because we hold particular views on marriage and sexuality, we are therefore hateful, bigoted, homophobic, transphobic, dangerous, you name it. And because of that, we're having to not only be believers who share the gospel, but more and more, we're also having to be apologists. We're having to defend our biblical position. Well, let's let's go there, because as believers, we know that we're to look to God's word, to look yep. to the Bible for how we view, what, if we're going to really try to live out a biblical Christian worldview, then what? how do we approach homosexuality as far as what the Bible says? Well, we take it as the Bible takes it. Um, I, I like the advice Paul gave to Timothy, that you should study to show yourself approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, important point rightly dividing the word of truth. When we rightly divide the word of truth, what do we see? We see that humanity is created in God's image. We see that God laid out a very specific plan for the human experience, including marriage and that heterosexual union, which God said would speak to Adam's deepest needs when he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Here is the solution. And that, of course, we know is not only the foundation for society, but also a type or a, a, a symbol of God's relationship with his people. In the Old Testament, God's relationship to Israel. In the New Testament, Christ's relationship to the church. Now, what does that tell you and I right off the bat? Marriage is sacred. The definition of marriage is sacred. And the definition of marriage, well, Jesus spelled it out when he said, do you not know that he who created them created the male and female? Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife, the two become one flesh. What God joined together, let no one set asunder. If we're going to approach this from a biblical position, we must approach it from the position then that the Bible takes, which is marriage is sacred. Marriage is a heterosexual union, which is monogamous and permanent. And anything falling short of that is by definition a sin, whether it's the use of pornography or fornication or adultery or incest or prostitution or homosexuality. And I guess I'm emphasizing it that way because on the one hand, it's a great error to pretend that those prohibitions against homosexuality are not in the Bible. They're clearly laid out in Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. Very clear prohibitions against it. On the other hand, it would be an equal error to overemphasize it and say that homosexuality is singled out in the Bible as the worst of all sexual sins, when in fact it is listed alongside adultery, fornication, prostitution, lust, and so forth. So what we see is basically God's intention for humanity is spelled out, including his intentions for our sexual experience, that it be enjoyed in the covenant of monogamous marriage and all the safety and protection that goes with that. Anything short of that falls short of what God intended. Now, to the unsaved, our position should be we want them born again. 
I mean, our big issue with homosexuals who don't know Christ isn't that they're homosexual. That's not the issue. That is a, a symptom of the issue. They need to be born again. So we evangelize the unsaved. To those within the church who struggle with this, we disciple them. We want to give them, like Paul told the Ephesians, the full counsel of God. And I do think there's a place for us also speaking prophetically to the culture, Kathy. I mean, I, I think of how wisdom is described in Proverbs as standing there in the street, basically saying, are you nuts? You know, there is a better way. And I I do believe in, in the America of 2023, good night. There's a real need for the church to take on a prophetic responsibility to say it is insane to try to change the biological sex you were born with. It is insane to redefine the institution of marriage. It's insane to murder the unborn life in the womb. These are, I believe, not just doctrinal issues. They're, they're prophetic issues. So I guess we really need to rise to the calling to evangelism and to apologetics and, you know, to speaking prophetically. One thing you said, I, I feel like the, um, that maybe the church in general has, if we want to say a mistake, if you will, that we've um, singled out homosexuality at times and not adultery and cohabitation, that, that all sexuality outside of God's design for marriage between a man and a woman is not what God contemplates or affirms. And, and I think that at times we need to make sure that that we're uh, that we're not singling out just homosexuality that and what God's design is for man and wife. Well, to me, I feel like that through the years when we would hear, well, how does someone um, get pulled into um, being homosexual or the desire to change their gender? To me, some of that has changed over time. Um, and it's almost like a popular thing now, but how? what would you say as far as what you see are the factors that seem to be leading someone into believing that they're gay or that they want to change their gender? Well, I agree with you, first of all, in saying that this is getting a little trendy. I mean, Kathy, who'd have thought? When I was growing up, now I'm 68 years old, so clearly that was a long time ago, but I'm right uh, behind. When, I, when I was growing up, um, to be a homosexual was considered one of the worst things you could possibly be. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the cultural contempt for people like that was so ginormous that it was perfectly fashionable to beat up a homosexual man, to look down on him and, and mistreat them, which was clearly unbiblical, ungodly, completely wrong. Just side note, I believe a lot of the trouble we're seeing now between the church and the homosexual community has its roots in the mistreatment of homosexuals from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and, and earlier. So I, I think you reap a very bitter uh, harvest from that. But, you know, th that said, um, I think that we have to be careful when we try to talk about why someone would become homosexual, because biblically, we don't have anything that tells us specifically why in every case someone develops such feelings. We do know, especially from Romans 1 and really from, from Romans 4 to 7, that we are all born in sin with a sin nature. And that that sin nature manifests itself in ways that are sometimes relatable to everyone and sometimes more unique. So, for example, you know, you and I, I think all of everybody watching this, we can all relate to the sin of selfishness, greed, dishonesty. I mean, we've all been there. There are some sins spelled out, say, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where you look at that and you think, are you kidding me? Somebody would want to do that? Well, yeah, somebody would. Now, the majority would not. But there are some sinful tendencies that are more unique to a minority, and I think that this is one of them. Now, that said, theologically, I think we can say that with certainty. 
there is no evidence to this date, as we're speaking in July 2023, um, there is still not proof that homosexuality is inborn. Although goodness knows since the, especially the early 1990s, there have been plenty of attempts to prove either the existence of a gay gene or some sort of biological foundation for homosexuality. It just has not been found. It's a lot like, um, I guess it's a lot like Bigfoot. There's pictures of it around, you know, but they're kind of fuzzy and not very conclusive. I don't get too hung up on that question myself, because I believe that even if we did find a gay gene, and I'm not holding my breath, I think if there was one, we'd have found it by now, but even if we did, it wouldn't change any of my positions, it would only tell us what we already know, we are born in sin, the sin nature has affected us body, soul, and spirit, so it could well be that a number of sinful tendencies are inborn, this could be one of them. I think in many cases, so there is there is the possibility of, of the inborn uh, dynamic. I think personally, um, I was not born homosexual, but I was born with a nature, a God-given personality that would make me more susceptible to certain things, homosexuality being one of them. So Kathy, you, know, you think of the fact I got two older brothers to my knowledge, none of them ever wrestled with this particular sin. We were all raised by the same dad, all raised in the same environment and so forth. Yet I was the one who wound up wrestling with this. Why me? I think that I was born not gay, but with a nature that made me susceptible to homosexuality if other variables came into play. And in my case, they did both a very rocky relationship with my father, early sexual molestation, all the resulting confusion. That was a setup. So there can be early dynamics we could look at and say, well, that's obviously what caused the person to feel that way. But, you know, in other cases, it's a mystery. I've known men and women who are lesbian or homosexual who had wonderful relationships with their parents, were raised in healthy homes. There's, there's nobody to bless or to blame. That's part of the mystery of fallen nature. But that speaks to something you brought up that I want to, if, if I could, land on for a minute. The whole idea of trendiness, um, you know, statistically, if, if you've been keeping up on studies uh, surveying the current adolescent population, it's astonishing the numbers of young people who are now identifying as lesbian, gay, or transgender. Now, there is no way, Kathy, that all of a sudden homosexuality in its truest form or transsexualism started springing up in these higher numbers. That's That's just not feasible. What is feasible is this. Um, if you know as an adolescent that adopting a certain identity will get you a tremendous amount of sympathy, affirmation, built-in community, status, and if it speaks to your confusion, because there are a lot of girls who think, well, I love soccer. I ain't no Barbie doll. Gee, maybe I'm trans. A lot of guys these days feel like, well, I'm sensitive. I love music. I love dancing. I don't know. Maybe I'm gay. You know, and these days, because those labels are so easily available, a lot of people are latching onto them prematurely, which is why I feel so strongly it is it's systematic evil to confirm kids in these identities, much less offer them medical treatments based on that confirmation before they're even old enough to legally get a tattoo. Their brains are just not formed to the extent that they can make that kind of a decision. So I think that there is 
what some people call social contagion going on, where people in clusters are saying, oh, I think I'm trans. I identify as trans or non-binary. Oh, so do I. Oh, yeah, me too. Oh, me too. Hey, we got built-in community here. And cause and support. And, uh, well, I remember being a teen. What adolescent wouldn't want all of those, you know? Well, and that you you use the word community, and I think that's a big part of it. And I think that that's where we all need to kind of realize that the need for community that many have, and that that's a community that, that quickly embraces and affirms and, and brings brings the person in. Um, what about um, advice or counsel for those listening that when someone, a loved one or a friend tells you, hey, I'm gay, or I think I'm in the wrong body, I wanna transition, what what's uh, what are some of the responses that individuals can make to to individuals to others? Uh, of course, Kathy, it depends on the context of that conversation. The context will be very different if a father has a son say that to them versus, say, a friend who has a friend say it. But generally, um, I, I think we have to manage our own emotions enough to still be listening. Whether you're hearing that from a son or a daughter or from a friend or a colleague or whatever. You want to show that initially you really do want to better understand where the person is coming from. Now, this doesn't mean go soft. It doesn't mean be vague about where you stand. It only means that you take the time to listen and say, okay, you tell me you're trans, you tell me you're gay, you tell me you're lesbian. Can you help me better understand what that means? Do you feel you're in the wrong body? Do you feel sexually attracted to the same sex? Are you confused about your gender identity? How long have you felt this way? Questioning someone like that shows that you're interested, that you're not just jumping to conclusions. And in the process, you've got a much better chance of building up trust, which is an important part of these conversations. But it is important also to, to be clear where you stand and not to be coy on this. The church is meant to be light. Light is not coy. So there really is a place, having listened and shown respect and consideration and so forth, to kind of clarify, well, you know, I believe we have a creator. And I believe our creator knew what he was doing when he assigned us the sex we've been assigned. People talk about sex as being assigned at birth. That's not really true. It's assigned a long time before that. Paul told the Ephesians that uh, he, he basically, you know, formed us, knew us before the foundation of the world. He chose us. Now, that foreknowledge of God included the foreknowledge of our sex. So, you know, God was never in anybody's delivery room saying, oh, I can't wait for the reveal. I wonder what it's going to be, a boy or a girl. But God assigned that, and that's immutable, which is one of the reasons, just on a practical point, Kathy, I cannot in good conscience comply if somebody says, I was born biologically male, but I want you to call me Elizabeth. Because in doing that, I would be saying, the God I love who is omniscient, omnipotent, and all-loving did not know what he was doing when he created you male. I will try to meet you halfway. I'll avoid pronouns. I don't have to call you any particular name. But what I cannot do is lie to you and tell you I believe something I don't believe because I believe you're male. Secondly, I cannot dishonor the God who created both of us. I don't believe he is imperfect, and only an imperfect God would have made you male if you were really intended to be female. You see? It says God made a mistake. That's um, exactly what you're saying, which is why I believe this is a, a, we're seeing a massive international revival of Gnosticism, 
Gnosticism, that ancient heresy that Paul and John railed about in their letters, it, among other things, teaches that the God who created us, called the Demiurge, was flawed. So part of the way we become divine is through gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, the intuitive knowledge. I identify as, I feel. And what is that, if not the usurping of divine authority? To speak things into existence which are not. And this is the, the madness of the time, is we're really teaching people to say and believe, if I say I am something, that's what I am, and you have to comply with that self-identification. Look what kind of a crazy road that could lead us all down. Well, and one thing that we hear, even, for example, in Arizona, when we had legislation to say no puberty blockers, nor no hormone therapy, no surgery for minors, and we're able to, Arizona law only prohibits surgery. We couldn't get the hormone therapy and, and puberty blocker banned through. But, you know, the mom who stands up and says that her child was going to commit suicide if they weren't allowed to transition. And we're hearing that where parents are... I think are fearful because they're being told that their child will commit suicide. But you know, transitioning doesn't solve the person's pro um, concerns or problems. But how do you respond that, to the parent who's been told, oh, you better help your child transition or else they're going to commit suicide? It's relational hostage taking. It appeals to a parent's worst fears and says, if you don't affirm, you're going to have a dead child. In fact, what you'll commonly hear is, well, would you rather have a trans child or a dead child? Now, I've got some quotes that I've used in the past from prominent figures, one of whom said, and this is a pro-transgender therapist who says, hey, trans kids know how to pull out the suicide card and play it to get what they want because it works every time. And it does. But you hit on something that's important. People who are transgender have a much higher rate of suicidality in their population. That rate doesn't go away just because they transitioned. So it's very unfair and inaccurate to say that a trans kid is going to commit suicide simply because he was not allowed or she was not allowed to attempt some sort of a transitioning process. Uh, the suicidality is already there, and the transitioning is not a solution to the problem. So for those reasons, I say nonsense when people say, oh, my gosh, you parents, your kids are going to kill themselves if they're not allowed to transition. It simply isn't true. It's not true. Another topic that we hear a lot about is um, so-called conversion therapy. And our, gov our Arizona governor just did an executive order to stop any state resources from being used to um, promote conversion therapy. Now, you know, walk us through what conversion therapy is. It's really not happening today, but but when they said, why are we having to fight so much this conversion therapy thing? What do you see in that? Well, that's pretty clever, isn't it? Conversion therapy is a mythical boogeyman. I mean, by and large, it simply doesn't exist. Originally, Kathy, the term was created to describe a traditional psychoanalytic approach to treating homosexuality, which included deep psychoanalysis, Freudian thought, and then in more extreme cases, aversion tactics like electroshock therapy or ice baths or showing pornography and shocking the person who's seen the pornography and so forth and, and, and treatments that have been not only rejected but um, have been out of date for a minimum of 40 years or longer. So it's very dishonest to say that that's a representation of conversion therapy. Now here's where it gets interesting and I think our, our listeners or our viewers can appreciate this. When somebody says that we want to ban something, 
and it sounds like something which should be banned, people will jump on that particular banned wagon without reading the fine print. So just for example, let me try this analogy. If we were to say ban the religious abuse of children, if we said that there are religious parents who beat their children until they're bloody, therefore we need to ban the religious abuse of children, a lot of people would say, well, of course, let's ban that. Let's pass a law. Let's get that done. Okay, so we say, fine. And the lawmakers put together a bill. And in the fine print, when it defines religious abuse of children, that includes parents telling their kids that they may not stay out past 11 o'clock at night, parents telling their kids that they may not smoke marijuana. Now, after you've already voted for that bill, then you read the fine print and go, whoops, that's not what I thought this meant. That's exactly what we're doing with conversion therapy. People say ban conversion therapy because conversion therapy, which is now defined as any attempt mm -hmm. to help a person change either their orientation, gender identity, or behavior, is detrimental. It causes suicide. It creates depression. And all the mental health experts condemn it. When you look at the fine print of the bill, it says conversion therapy includes any teaching which states that homosexuality is abnormal and any attempts to even change behavior or identity. Kathy, every Bible-believing pastor is now doing conversion therapy. Every Bible-believing Christian who even speaks on the subject of homosexuality is doing conversion therapy. And every guy like me, who was once a part of the gay community and has now overcome that, we're guilty of it too. In fact, you may have heard of uh, the case in Malta of Matthew Creech, a young man who uh, in Malta, they have a ban on conversion therapy. He spoke openly on Christian radio about his testimony. Police showed up, served him a warrant. He's facing trial this week and he could face jail time and a fine or both. Now that's what these bans really are. They are attempts to silence any speech which criticizes or condemns homosexuality regardless. So I guess my point is they are not what they appear to be. They paint a boogeyman of something that needs to be fought. And once you agree to fight that boogeyman, they include in the definition of the boogeyman any biblical teaching on human sexuality. Now, let me just add something here. That's bad enough, Kathy. The thing itself is bad enough. It would make criminals of pastors but even worse, not even worse, but also bad. The precedent it's setting, if we allow this, is the precedent of the culture being able to say to the church, we will henceforth tell you what you may preach against and what you may not preach against. Pretty serious stuff. It also is the government telling parents what type of care they can get for their child and what type of care they can't get and telling a counselor what type of counseling they can give and not give. And so at least on a, just a side note, there is a case from Washington State that has, is on its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we pray that the court will take it and um, overturn these bans as being unconstitutional. But let, let you mentioned the gentleman um, in Malta. Let's talk about, we hear the term detransition. We know that people do um, enter into living as a homosexual, you know, transitioning the opposite gender, and then they change, they, they come out of it. So what do you see in that or how, um, maybe even how best to help someone? I mean, I think the detransition stories are some of the most tragic um, status uh -oh. that we're seeing today because they're scarred for life. Um, but how, um, what, what, do you, what are you seeing there? Well, let me jump on my soapbox a bit as if I haven't already. 
But Kathy, you realize how astonishing this is, how absurd it is? This double standard violates everything we know about common sense. On the one hand, we're telling parents and therapists, you may not counsel a teenager who simply wants to say no to his gay desires. That's all he wants to do. You can't do that. That's illegal. That's conversion therapy. But you can allow a teenager to pump puberty blockers into his or her body, you know, identify as a member of the opposite sex, get chemical treatments that could, as you say, have lifelong permanent damaging effects. And when you think about it, the 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 um, the person who wants to leave homosexuality like I did, that's relatively tame. I mean, all I had to do was change my behavior. It wasn't a small thing. I'm not going to make light of it. It was actually a major thing, one of the most significant things I ever did in my life. But it didn't involve reversing any medical procedure, you know? When people detransition, they have a lot to deal with. But I think it's just, again, absurd that we prohibit teenagers from being allowed to explore change just in their sexual behavior and identity, but we encourage teenagers of the same age to incur changes that may be lifelong and, and physically permanent. Now, if somebody detransitions, of course we want that to happen, just like we want people to come out of homosexuality. Let's not pretend we don't have an agenda. I think it's kind of silly when people say, I don't have an agenda. Come on, if you want something, you've got an agenda. Nothing wrong with that. But um, we have to recognize our limitations. When someone I love is making the wrong decision, I can preach, I can plead, I can conjole, I can reason. Nothing wrong with doing all of those, but I must also realize I can never override free will. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I do our best to plant the seed of truth with what we say, which is what the church has been commissioned to do. We are commissioned to speak but we're also commissioned to trust. I have to trust. And if somebody leaves homosexuality like I did, if somebody detransitions like so many do, usually it is because God softened their heart and enlightened their mind and caused them to realize I was created for something more than this. So while on the one hand, I think it's tragic when someone has to detransition, I think we of all people ought to be the rooting gallery saying, fantastic, go for it, and we are here with you. Because it, it is, for someone like me, again, when I came back into the church, well, they received me, it was wonderful, but it wasn't that big of a deal. For somebody, just take, for example, someone who's, who is biologically male, but has lived as a woman for the last 15 years. All right, that guy may say it's time to transition, but do you think he's going to walk into church and just look like the average guy? Of course not. Of course not. He's going to be openly effeminate. He's going to have the changes brought about either by surgery, hormones, or both. He may still be adjusting to male-appropriate clothing. He's going to feel awkward. We're going to have to walk alongside that guy and celebrate his decision to make sure he knows, hey, we are with you. We, You're not going to be ostracized here. We support you. We celebrate you, and we want to do all we can to help be part of what God's obviously doing. But it is not an easy thing to do. And, you know, um, I, I think sometimes we want the presto change our testimony because that makes everybody more comfortable. You know, when I repented of homosexuality, I repented of the sin, but that didn't relieve me of the sinful temptations. I went back into the church as a Christian man who still to some degree had same-sex desires. 
Now, I will say with time, those desires got less and less and less and less to the point where now they're virtually muted. But I think under the right circumstances, they could be reawakened. I know what those circumstances would be. So for obvious reasons, I avoid them. But I can't honestly say that I'm above the possibility of ever being tempted again. Now, it's been uh, 39 years since I repented. I got no intention of going back. But all I'm saying is I... I, I cannot say that I would be exempt from temptation. And that's an important point. We've got to be willing to, 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 to walk with people in their discipleship who are called to do what we're all called to do. We're all called to take up our cross mm -hmm. and basically crucify our flesh, deny ourselves. And uh, that includes saying no to a lot of deeply ingrained desires. And I think that's an important point. I also want to just mention on the detransition, the courage it takes. And if if the listeners, if you're on Twitter, look up Chloe Cole, C-H-L-O-E Cole. Chloe is a young woman, 18 or 19 years old, who has been sharing her transition, her detransition story all over the country. And you just want to weep with her when she talks about how she will never be able to um, nurse a baby. And, and so that is um, how she was led astray at the age, ages of 12 and 14. She's also now suing um, the medical providers. And you just kind of hope that, I mean, that, that's how we can stop some of this. Thanks for listening to Engage Arizona. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on your preferred podcast platform. Don't forget to share with family and friends. And if you would like to learn more, please visit our website at azpolicy.org.